Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher Andrew Melnick. I find it very, um, very mystifying. If you're a dualist trying to explain the neural dependence of reasoning on the operation of certain brain processes, then you ought to be able to say why our, our non-physical minds can't undergo reasoning all by themselves. If you like the show and want it to continue, please write a kind review on iTunes or send the link to a friend. And now, my interview with Andrew Melnick. Dr. Andrew Melnick is a philosopher at the University of Missouri and the author of A Physicalist Manifesto, Thoroughly Modern Materialism. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Andrew, your book is about materialism, but I assume you don't mean that kind of American dream materialism that supposes happiness is to be found in buying lots of stuff. What is this materialism that you're writing about? Well, you're right. I'm not writing about the American dream materialism. That makes a normative or evaluative claim. And the materialism that I'm writing about is a purely descriptive claim. Uh, and it, uh, it, it claims something about the fundamental nature of absolutely everything. And in particular, it claims that uh, the fundamental nature of everything is to be made of matter. And then what is physicalism? Are they the same thing? Well, a lot of authors use the two terms materialism and physicalism uh, interchangeably. I tend not to do so. And in fact, that's, that's reflected in the title of my book, um, A Physicalist Manifesto, Thoroughly Modern Materialism. My thought was that materialism is a, a thesis with a long history, and it appeals to the notion of matter, and uh, to claim that everything is made of matter. And physicalism is a little bit more specific than that, because as I understand physicalism, the claim is that everything is ultimately made of the, the sorts of things posited by uh, fundamental physics. And whether it's true to say that we uh, we still believe in matter, given what fundamental physics tells us, is a, a difficult question. But uh, it, it's not implausible to me that it turns out there's no such thing as, as matter. It turns out that the world is as uh, as physics describes it. Right. Now, some philosophers think that physicalism can't even be coherently defined because, for example, if physicalism is what fundamental physics studies, then that might be changing all the time, for example, with dark energy and dark matter and all that. So what are some of the objections to trying to define physicalism? The objection that uh, I think is most important has the form of a, a dilemma. So physicalism is going to say something like everything is either physical or entirely constituted by the physical. So an electron would be physical, but a, um, a brain cell uh, would be entirely constituted by the physical because it's made of structures which are made of molecules that are made of in the end, things like uh, electrons. What is physical in the sense in which an electron is, is physical? And the dilemma is this, that there look to be two ways in which you could uh, characterize the physical. And one way would be to take the word to be referring to things posited by current physics. The problem with that seems to be that the track record of physics is to make changes and to abandon the posits of earlier theories and replace them with new ones. And so if past is any guide, it looks like current physics is, is very likely to turn out to be false. Maybe in 200 years' time, we'll, we'll regard it as, uh, as, as utterly misguided. So if current physics is false, then a thesis of physicalism formulated in terms of it is going to be false. 
Well, what about defining physics another way? The other possibility seems to be that we we let physics be the science of whatever turns out to be the fundamental constituents of, of the world. So it's, it's a sort of idealized thing. It'll be the, the complete and correct science of, of, of the fundamental. Um, and of course, we don't know what such a science is going to uh, tell us about the world. And the problem with trying to define uh, physical that way is that physicalism might turn out to be consistent with dualism. I mean, if it turned out that the complete and correct science of the of the fundamental um, assigned a fundamental role to mental states, then they would count as physical, and then physicalism could be true, even though we're supposing the mental states are part of the the, the fundamental furniture of the world. And what is your response to that objection? Well, the the response that I defend in my book makes quite a radical move. I actually embrace the first horn of the dilemma. So I propose to define the physical by reference to current physics or to a modest development of, of current physics. And I accept that that might mean that current physics is probably false. And that would entail that physicalism is, is probably false too. But I adopt a general view about what it is to accept a theory in science. And I consider physicalism to be a, a very abstract a theory, but still a theory in science. And according to the view of what it is to, to, to hold a theory, all you have to do is to assign it a higher probability of being correct than you assign to any of what I call the theories relevant rivals. So a theory can be something you endorse just because it's the best we've got so far. That's, that's the intuitive idea that I'm, uh, I'm trying to capture. And that's the sort of thing that scientists them, themselves say, that the, the, this theory is the best we've got so far. And that's a way to make that a little bit more formal is, is to say, well, it's a theory to which we assign the highest probability among the theories that we've considered. But the highest probability might still not be very high uh, and might conceivably be under 50%. So I'm prepared to define physicalism in terms of current physics, except that this means that physicalism may well have a probability of less than 0.5 but my insistence is that that's still a higher probability than that of its its rivals, and one rival, of course, would be the view you get if you're a if you're a physicalist about everything but the mind. Physicalism, I think, still has a higher probability than that. I mean, the view that everything except the mind is physical, in the sense given by current physics, is just as uh, open to this historical objection as is the view that absolutely everything is physical, including the mental. Well, I like the way that you've characterized that. It's, I suppose, a very humble way of characterizing physicalism. Now, is the idea that if it turns out to be the case that indeed there's some radical discovery in fundamental physics and it doesn't make sense to say that the physicalism you were talking about in terms of current physics is identical to the physicalism of, say, a hundred years from now after some radical discovery, then maybe that would mean that your version of physicalism defined in terms of current physics was falsified, but, you know, something like physicalism 2.0 is the up-and-coming theory, and the reason that you can't defend that now is because we don't have it. Yes, right, right. That's a, that's a good way to put it, yeah. If, say, within my lifetime, physics undergoes revolutionary changes of the sort that it, I think, hasn't undergone since you know, the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, if that were to happen, and 
I mean, we just had an entirely new conception of physics, then I'd have to admit that my view, the view defended in my book, is simply false. But I would expect that such a view would leave, say, chemistry pretty much unchanged. Right. Chemistry is itself extremely well concerned, independently of whether you, you think that you can explain, say, the nature of the chemical bond in quantum mechanical terms and, and so forth. And so I imagine that one could, as, as you say, formulate a, a later version of something that would be analogous in various ways to what I'm calling physicalism, and it would enjoy at least as much uh, plausibility. I mean, more, in fact, of course, because we're assuming that the that current physics is superseded. Well, many physicalists or materialists or naturalists will say that they believe that existence is natural or physical or material because they don't see any good evidence that non-physical things exist. But even if that were true and there isn't any good evidence for non-physical things, how would that justify the claim that there just aren't any non-physical things? I mean, couldn't there be non-physical things that we d just don't know about yet? Somewhat recently, we didn't have any evidence for black holes, but of course it would have been wrong for us to claim that we know there are no black holes. That's a great question, and I could talk at much greater length than I plan to do in response to it, but let me just uh, make three points. The first is this, that, of course, there could be non-physical things that we don't yet know about. I, I don't see any way to definitively rule out that, that possibility, but I don't think it has any uh, important consequences. Here's an analogy. It could be that President Obama is an elaborate robot uh, controlled by radio by aliens who are uh, hanging out on Mars. Now, it's, of course, it, we think exceedingly improbable, but it could be the case. I mean, a lot of what we believe to be true would have to turn out to be uh, false and so on, but it could be the case. We don't ordinarily think it follows from that, that we don't know that he isn't a robot. So I, I think unless one puts very heavy, heavy emphasis on the word no, so that to know something requires ruling out even the, the logical possibility of the proposition being false. Right. These sorts of possibilities don't actually undermine knowledge. So that's one point. The second point gets to what you're, you're, you're really worried about. I'm actually inclined to agree that the mere lack of good evidence for thinking that there are non-physical things doesn't itself entail that there aren't non-physical things or even that we're justified in thinking that there, there aren't non-physical things. But I think there's more to the, the rationale for physicalism than that. But one way of looking at the rationale for physicalism is this, that physicalism has a, has a form of a, a universal generalization. So it, it says that everything is physical or physically constituted. Right. And given that it has that form of universal generalization, um, in principle, um, it, it ought to be possible to support it by so-called enumerative induction. That is, by finding lots of positive instances of the generalization, um, things that do exist and are physical or, or physically constituted, and uh, finding no negative instances. They would be things that exist that are, that are not physical or, or physically constituted. I take it that the that physicalism is is supported in that way, um, with lots of instances of things that are physical or, or physically or constituted, and no instances of things that aren't. Now, in in that rationale for for physicalism, the the absence of negative instances is only one part of the evidence for physicalism. You have to add to that the the positive instances of the hypothesis. So we, we've looked at an awful lot of things in the world and studied them, and a great many of them do seem to be nothing but physical systems of, of varying degrees of, of, of complexity and size and so on. 
perhaps I should turn to the third point. I do want to insist that in some cases, absence of evidence is indeed evidence of absence. This is obvious in, in some common sense cases. There's no giraffe in my office, and I'm very confident that there's no giraffe in my office. But all I can really point to is that I've no evidence for there being a giraffe in my office. But of course, we do think that if there were one, it being a very large and conspicuous object, I would surely know about it. Um, and so the fact that I don't have evidence for the presence of a giraffe is a good, is good reason to think that, a, that there is no giraffe there. Right. And I think we're in an analogous situation with regard to the mind. So, for example, to the best of my knowledge, we have, we have no evidence of non-physical causal influences on neurons. Now, is this evidence of the non-existence of such influences, the non-existence of a non-physical mind? I think I want to say yes. Yes, it is. Because neurons have been very, very thoroughly studied and their, their operations are very well understood. And there has been no sign at all of any non-physical influences on them. You think that if there were non-physical influences on, on neurons, that those influences would have messed up the attempts to study them as purely physical systems that have been so so successful. So in, in, under the right circumstances, I, I think uh, absence of evidence, as I say, can be evidence of, of absence. Yeah. But you have to have more than the sheer absence of evidence. I mean, one could have absence of evidence for something simply because one you know, stuck one's fingers in one's ears and said, la, 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 you know, because you just refuse to listen to any evidence or expose yourself to any <laughs> evidence. And that, that wouldn't, wouldn't be evidence of absence. Right. I wonder what you think of a different sort of analogy. Another type of generalization would be, hey, everywhere we've looked, we have yet to find intelligent life outside of the beings that are on Earth, and we've looked a lot of places, so it seems, though, like we're still not justified in making this generalization about, well, there probably aren't intelligent beings elsewhere in the universe. So what's the difference between that and the generalization that the physicalist is making? That's a good question. I think that in the case of intelligent life, we have other evidence, and we're, we're responding to that other evidence when we think that there could well be, or indeed there probably is, intelligent life somewhere else in the universe. And what, what I have in mind is that we do have well-developed and well-confirmed views about how life might possibly arise. We also know that the universe is very, very large. Mm -hmm. And you know, given that you don't think that, that life on Earth was, was intelligently designed in some way, there doesn't seem any particular reason to suppose that what happened couldn't occur elsewhere too. And, and given the sheer size of the universe, it seems almost certain that it's occurred somewhere. So I suspect that some sort of reasoning like that lies behind our, our view there. As a physicalist, what do you say about all the things that seem like they exist and yet don't seem like they could be physical? Things like numbers or objective moral values or consciousness, although you t spoke about that one kind of a little bit before. Yeah, I think I, I want to treat these, these cases differently, at least the, the numbers case, differently from the, the case of objective moral values or, or consciousness. Philosophy of mathematics is immensely perplexing, but leaving aside whether an ultimately correct philosophy of mathematics is going to wind up treating numbers as objects, which it might not. It's sort of commonsensical to suppose that, that numbers exist. I mean, there really is a, 
There really isn't uh, a, a whole number between one and three. If the number two exists, then I assume it, it, it's a necessary existence. It's not that it exists in some possible worlds, but not in others. Um, it, it exists in all possible worlds or, or not at all. The official way in my book in which I escape worries about numbers and other such things may be set is that I restrict the scope of my physicist thesis to things that exist contingently. That is, things that uh, exist in, in some but not all possible worlds. Hmm. So, strictly speaking, numbers, even if they exist, since they exist necessarily, aren't counterexamples to my thesis. I mean, this isn't a substantive response to the question I appreciate. It was really a way of, of avoiding talking about abstract objects because my interest is really in the, the relationship between different branches of science and what they tell us about contingent reality okay. and how what each branch of science tells us fits together with what other branches of science tell us. And that seems to me a sufficient evil for the day. Objective moral values, yes. I certainly think there are objective moral values, although, of course, I, I don't think that they're objects like uh, pencils or oranges or, or something. They're not, they're not continuance, they're not persisting objects. It's just that, that some things really are wrong to do. It really is wrong to torture people just for fun. I don't have a settled view on what makes um, an action wrong. I mean, the people who do have, have really worked out and carefully considered views on these topics are moral philosophers, and in particular, uh, meta-ethicists in, in moral philosophy. Think about the nature of moral claims and whether they, what sort of objectivity they have and how we can know them to be true if, they, if the sort of objectivity they have is truth or falsity. And for what it's worth, I'm attracted to, to a contractarian view of morality. So very roughly, the idea is that um, a, a wrong action is one that it's in your enlightened self-interest to refrain from doing on condition that everyone else refrains from doing it too. So refraining from just killing people you run into would be a good example. It's a, it's a good deal all, uh, all the way around if we, if we all refrain from doing it. Consciousness, you mentioned, right. that's an enormous topic. Some mental states are said to be phenomenally conscious. And what, what that means is that there's, there's something it's like for the person who's in the mental state to, to be in that mental state. So suppose you, you feel a pain in your, in your foot, then it seems like there's something it's like to have a, have a pain in the foot. Suppose that you are looking at the blue sky, it seems like there's something it's like to look at the blue sky. Now, what account can one give of what it's like to be in those phenomenally conscious mental states? I don't have a, a, a distinctive view here. I just embrace a, a, a view that has been defended by various uh, philosophers over the past, um, I guess, 15 years or so. Sometimes it's called intentionalism or a representational theory of phenomenal states. And the, the basic idea is that these states that uh, there's something it's like to be in are a kind of representational state. So if you have a pain in the foot, what you're doing is mentally representing something about your foot. Maybe you're mentally representing that there's, there's tissue damage in your foot or, or potential tissue damage in your foot. But, but mentally representing that there's tissue damage in your foot in a way which constitutes having a pain in the foot would not be the same as, as thinking that or believing that there's tissue damage in your foot. So the, the kind of mental representation which might plausibly be identified with having bodily sensations or perceptual sensations is going to be a, a relatively primitive kind of mental representation, kind of mental representation that linguistic infants 
can have, for instance, and presumably a wide variety of, of non-human animals as well. Mm. So anyway, that, that's that's just in a in a nutshell what I'm inclined to think about phenomenal consciousness. Andrew, another feature of your brand of physicalism is that, as you said a moment ago, your theory is really only one about contingent things, things that could have been or might not have been. But that leads to a surprising conclusion that your brand of physicalism doesn't seem to exclude a necessary being named God. So long as this being didn't exert any, any causal influence on the world, I restrict the scope of, of my thesis to things that are contingent and or causal. I see. So um, numbers are not causal. And I, I did wonder about the, the, the case of God, if God is conceived as a, as a necessary being. But then I think that everyone who thinks that is going to think that, that God can exert causal influence on other things, in which case he, he would then fall under the scope of, of my thesis. Andrew, specifically about the philosophy of mind, are there any serious dualistic theories of mind that fit the data in detail? Uh, To the best of my knowledge, no one has ever advanced a serious dualist theory of the mind. And by a serious dualist theory of the mind, I I mean more than just saying it's a non-physical entity and that it has the the sorts of properties that uh, we ascribe to people in, in folk psychology. Um, I mean, a, a theory of the mind that uh, tries to integrate dualism with the, with the nitty-gritty detail that uh, cognitive neuroscience gives us. I mean, it, cognitive neuroscience generates all sorts of fascinating findings about the mind, and one would like a, a dualist theory that actually uh, accounts for some of those findings in a way that's consistent with, with, with what we know about the brain. Dualism, for me, always reminds me of somebody who would say, you know, even though we now understand the physical processes behind lightning and there are physical processes correlated to everything that we experience with lightning, still we just posit that it's there's still Zeus behind lightning. That's what it always sounds like to me. Yes, yes, uh, yes I have to say, yeah, it sounds that way rather to, to me too. It's a very strange view. Years ago, when I was a graduate student, very sympathetic to substance dualism, I used to think that, well, the non-physical mind is a sort of central processor, and the brain supplies the input systems and the output systems. We need these sensory mechanisms in order to get information from the physical world into our minds, and then so that we can produce motion in the physical world, we have to have other bits of the brain, something like that. If that were right, then you would expect that there would be all sorts of mental activity that wouldn't have to be associated with particular brain activity. In pure reflection of some kind, you know, reflection on facts that you have, uh, have known for a long right. time or whatever. Uh, perhaps reflection is not geared toward action in any particular way. I mean, philosophical reflection, for instance. But that's not what turns out to be the case. If you're going to be a dualist and you want to reconcile that with what we know about the neural dependence of, of, of mental states, then you've got to come up with something a lot stranger than that. I find it very, um, very mystifying. If you're a dualist trying to explain the neural dependence of reasoning on the operation of certain brain processes, then you ought to be able to say why our, our non-physical minds can't undergo reasoning all by themselves. This is pressing if you're prepared just to attribute any powers you like to a non-physical mind and say, well, well if you've got a non-physical mind, you just can think about Napoleon or you just can think about pi or something else mathematical. 
Andrew, when you said pie, I had a Homer Simpson moment where I went, mmm, pie. And then you said, or other mathematical uh, well, objects. And I was like, oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that kind of pie. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, yes, right. Well, besides the definitional dilemma that you spoke about at the beginning of our conversation, what do you think are the best counter-arguments to physicalism, if any? Well, my official view is that they all fail. And I'm not sure anyone failed less badly than others. I have an observation that may be interesting. Sure. My suspicion is that the most persuasive arguments for, for dualism are uh, arguments for thinking that phenomenal consciousness is, is not a physical feature uh, of mental states that have them. And so the, the painfulness of the pain is, is, is not a physical property or the, the blueness that you seem to be directly aware of when you look at a blue object or, or hallucinate looking at a blue object or something like that. Um, but that's just not a, not a physical property. But arguments that phenomenal consciousness is not physical tend to come down to um, a conviction that I think we probably all have while we're introspecting our own sensations. You might be looking at the blue sky and then it seems like you can pay attention to a feature of what's going on in you that is not a feature of the external world. You're not attending to the, the blueness of the sky. You're attending to, as it were, something blue inside you. And you think that because you could be dreaming that you're looking at the blue sky or you could maybe be hallucinating that you're looking at the blue sky. Or, or you suppose that if somebody poked around in your brain with, with microelectrodes, they could get you to have exactly the same sensations. So external blueness is not necessary. So it seems like it's not external blueness that you're attending to there. So what is that, 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 that blueness? I think the conviction we, we all have is that we're aware of the whole essence of that blueness. Nothing about it escapes us. It has no hidden nature or anything. And if that's right, then phenomenal blueness couldn't just couldn't turn out to be essentially physical or essentially functional. Because if it were essentially physical or, or functional, then we would have had to have been aware of that when we attended to it in introspection. So this is not supposed to be an argument, really, against physicalism, but it is, a, it is I think, a, a psychologically um, efficacious conviction that we all have. And I think physicalists will really be able to uh, explain it away. I don't think they're obliged to explain it away, but it would be very nice if they can explain that away. Well, switching gears a bit, you had a written debate with two Christian philosophers, Stuart Goetz and Charles Taliaferro, on the secular web about physicalism. You argued for physicalism, and then they raised objections, and you responded, and then they argued for free will and dualistic consciousness, and, and you replied, and they replied. What did you think about that debate and the arguments and the process of debate? Well, I, I found the whole process very interesting. That was good. There was a feature of it that uh, took me by surprise. You know, I, I started off by, as you say, presenting some evidence and in fact, it was the uh, version of the argument from the neural dependence of mental phenomena on, on physical phenomena that I was talking about a few moments ago. And um, I, I did expect that they would want to contest that in some sort of way, or they would want to produce another sort of empirical evidence, but the one that would tend to support dualism rather than, than physicalism. They didn't do that at all. And my, my first reaction was to think, well, they've just completely ignored what, what I had to say. 
And then I realized that actually what was going on was, was subtler, much subtler than that. They were making a basic epistemological assumption that I wasn't prepared to make. And the assumption concerned what it is that we can learn about our minds through introspection. They seem to take it that through introspection, we can come to learn that we are non-physical entities, that dualism is true, and that we can come to learn that with such certainty that it's not even worth looking at empirical evidence against it, because we know already that the evidence must be misleading, because the conclusion it it might seem to support is, is false. And then what did you think about the second debate that you had with them about their arguments in favor of dualistic consciousness and free will? Was that kind of the same character where they were mostly just arguing that when we think about it in our own heads, we feel like we have dualistic consciousness and free will? Yes, I think so, yes. And that, so I think that the substance of their response to me was the same as the substance of their positive case. We know from the first-person case that we have libertarian free will, and similarly for the unity of the, the self, as, as I remember, they think that we're sort of directly aware of our uh, our unity as as thinkers, unity which we couldn't have if we were if we were actually brains, or constituted by functioning brains or or something like that. Well, Andrew, I must admit that when I'm confronted with that kind of argumentation. Even from atheists about morality, for example, in favor of moral realism based on our moral intuitions, I'm just so, it's like there's such a gap between the way that we're thinking about things, and it would seem like after the complete and continuous failure of introspection and the continuous success of science as a method of knowing, I just don't even know how to enter into a debate with someone who argues from introspection in contradiction to the evidence and says that, well, my introspection is more epistemically valuable. How did you respond to that kind of case in your debate with Getz and Taliaferro? I certainly expressed skepticism about the possibility of knowing any contingent claim about the world, that there are non-physical minds, for instance, but by a method which meant that um, you were absolved of the uh, the obligation to, to look at evidence that apparently contradicted your your view. It sounds a lot like they thought that introspection could lead us rationally to assign a probability of one to substance dualism, so that no amount of evidence apparently against it could ever shift that probability downwards. Mm. Um, and I, and I, don't see, I don't see how introspection could, could give us that. Well, Andrew, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure for me, too. Thank you very much. In the next episode, I'll be interviewing philosopher Stephen Law about the Evil God Challenge. So stay tuned for more Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot.